So I'd like to give a little bit of a further context to this very core teaching of the Buddha on these limbs of awakening. I'd like to start with a quote from the Buddha. Where he says, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit or its goal, or the attainment of virtue, concentration, or knowledge as its goal. But it is this unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartwood and its end. The sense of liberation or the freedom or the unshakable deliverance of the heart is so central to the Buddha's path that when we enter this path, when we begin to practice, we are really engaged in a path of waking up or awakening. And I think it's useful to ask of ourselves, what does this mean to us? And what does it ask of us? As I reflect on these questions, I think waking up for me means discovering and embodying a way of living that is no longer governed by compulsive patterns and habits that tie us to distress, including patterns of, of greed or ill will or confusion. Waking up for me means learning to live in the light of what we most deeply value and understand to be worthy and wholesome. These qualities of peace, of kindness, compassion, of ethics and understanding that are so dear to us, learning to be an embodied human being. Waking up for me means beginning to see life as it actually is through our views, through our distortions, to really begin to see and understand the unarguable nature of vulnerability, dukkha, the unarguable nature of change, of conditionality and not self. To be free, as the Buddha put it, to abide independent, not clinging to anything in this world. I don't know how it is for you, but I know when I began on this path, I didn't undertake this journey to remain the same, to become more intimate with my struggles or to be a spectator upon my own disasters. I think that the path really invites quite a radical change in how we see, in how we live, and how we respond to life. As the Buddha put it, he said, I, I teach just one thing, that there is dukkha, and that there is an end to dukkha, an end to, to greed and to hatred and delusion, and an unbinding from patterns of confusion and reactivity that fuel distress and despair and, react, and more reactivity. Waking up, I'm sure as we all know, is a noble aspiration 
but the path is not easy. There are moments, and I hope that you've encountered some of those moments, that there are moments of, of true joy and peace. And there are also moments of despair and doubt. And I think when we begin this practice and this path, we, we deeply appreciate the, the challenge of emerging from a habit-driven compulsive life into a way of being and a way of living where we flourish, where we're creative, where we, can, where we are the compassionate, insightful beings. We have the capacity to be, where we're able to respond to life, to the world, to the people we meet with kindness and balance and compassion. And I think as we embark on this journey, we, we're invited to ask of ourselves, what are our allies? What are our friends and our allies in this journey that support and nourish us, that incline the heart towards awakening? And here we come to the Bojangas, the Pali word for the seven limbs or the seven supports of awakening. The word part of Bojanga, Bo, derives from Bodhi or liberation. And Anga is the Pali word for limbs. The Bojangas describe seven qualities or capacities we already have. These are seeds of potentiality within us. They are not alien to us, but we learn to more clearly identify, know, appreciate, and strengthen these qualities. In the early texts, these qualities are referred to as an inner wealth or the seven treasures, the seven treasures that protect us against pain and adversity, and that incline the heart towards awakening. So Buddha put it, these seven qualities, when cultivated and brought to fruition, free the mind, the heart, from all forms of bondage and suffering. They incline the mind towards liberation. There's a, a couple of ways of seeing these qualities. They are both pathways and practices that we cultivate, and they are also fruitions. If we ask ourselves, what would the mind of a Buddha look like? It would feature these qualities. So just to list the seven bhajangas. The first of these, unsurprisingly, is sati or mindfulness. You do find that in many Buddhist lists that describe different pathways of development, how often they begin with mindfulness. The second of these is investigation of the dhammas, dhamma vichaya. The third of these qualities is courage. Energy, virya. The next of these qualities is joyfulness, piti. The next is the quality of tranquility or serenity, pasadi. 
And the last of these qualities is equanimity or upekka. So what I would like to cover this weekend or to reflect on this weekend is each of these qualities to begin to unpack them, uh, to reflect or to investigate what they look like in our lives. They're not separate. These are interrelated qualities. Another way of seeing the bojangas, beginning with mindfulness, is the next of the six qualities are actually different aspects or different nuances of sati. Now, the, the early teachings are really replete with references to the importance of these qualities to be developed and to be brought to fruition. In one of the texts, the Buddha says, just as the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven limbs of awakening, they incline towards Nibbana. He goes on to say that those who have undertaken the seven limbs of awakening have undertaken the noble path leading to the end of dukkha, the end of distress. Further, he says, nuns and monks, I do not see even one other thing than these seven treasures that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of all that obstructs awakening. And here too, this is, this is, as I mentioned earlier, that the cultivation of the lovely does the unbinding from all that obstructs awakening. Now, there is a, a, a school of thought that sees the cultivation of the seven treasures as a path of cultivation primarily undertaken on a meditation cushion. But I think there's plenty of evidence in the early text that acknowledges that, and in our own lives, acknowledges that confusion and distress are met, not only in formal meditation, but in our lives, in our relationships, in the world that we live in. And for me, these qualities become really relevant when we learn to cultivate them in the midst of the lives that we live, that we learn what it means or constantly explore what it means to be awake and to call upon our allies to guide us on the path in the midst of all things. Truly, the classroom of this cultivation is the classroom of the confusion and distress that we all meet in this life with its 10,000 joys and sorrows. So the Buddha speaks about these qualities that really incline the heart towards awakening, but he also speaks about the challenges and the difficulties we meet in our lives, both the personal, our personal stories of challenge and distress and struggle, but also the universal, uh, the universal story of some of the patterns within the human mind that keep us kind of bound to these cycles of repetition, 
you know, here I am again, you know, reacting with anger or irritated or resentful or kind of feeling bewildered and lost. The Buddha speaks so much about the universal story of these patterns. And he names them. He names these patterns that really obstruct awakening that are really our inner classroom where we cultivate the bhajangas. The Pali word for some of these patterns that the Buddha identified is the nivaranas. This is often translated as the hindrances or the obscurations or the veiling patterns. Now, the Buddhist describes these kind of patterns or these threads of, that are distress causing. He describes them as being the creators of mental illness and distress. That these are the primary saboteurs of aspiration and intention. That these five factors he names, they make us forgetful of what we most deeply value and our capacity to live in the light of those values. That these five patterns, they lead away from freedom and bind us to compulsive activity and reactivity, distorting our capacity to see things the way they are. I want to name these five patterns that, and when I name them, to, for you just to consider how they arise in your own lives, how they arise in your own minds and heart. I don't think we'll struggle to recognize them. Sensual craving. Sensual craving. This sense of you know, just wanting to be stimulated, wanting to be enlivened. This sense of, of more, more, more. Um, or and rooted very much in an inner sense of just not enough, insufficiency, not having enough, not being good enough, not liking what we have. And so this sensual craving, this reaching out to sensual gratification as a way of soothing ourselves or as a way of calming or helping us to forget some of the struggle and the, and the distress we experience. The central craving. Then the pattern of ill will, aversion, irritation, jealousy, um, impatience, judgment, blame, shame. This whole landscape of ill will, of pushing away. The third of these forgetfulness patterns is the pattern of sluggishness or numbness. Kind of just a, a, a dullness inwardly, um, a feeling of not really connecting with life in a way that is vital and sensitive and appreciative, a feeling of sinking, of you know, seeing life at a, as a distance, of not being deeply touched. And, you know, so many people, of course, experience this on a meditation cushion where they sit down with the intention to be awake and moments later find their chin on their chest as they kind of snooze off into dreamland. 
But it is more than just that falling asleep. It's a, it's a kind of dissociative pattern. It's a dissociative pattern of wanting to create distance. The next of these forgetfulness patterns is agitation and worry. And perhaps you can spot this in your own experience. The mind that churns with endless thinking, the body that finds it hard to be still. Um, we live in an agitated world often. And there's so many ways that we absorb that agitation into our own systems where we're kind of on overdrive, sort of on overdrive. And part of that agitation, as the Buddha put it, is this tendency to worry, to be anxious. And there's so much that we can worry about, you know, the past, the future, the plans, our, our ambitions, our families, our, our world. You know, there is so much that we can worry about. And the last of these forgetfulness patterns is a pattern of skeptical doubt. You know, not the helpful doubt that questions and investigates, but the kind of doubt that leaves us paralyzed. You know, can I can I actually do this? Can I actually, you know, uh, cultivate this path? Can I make choices? Can I make decisions? This endless desire to be, you know, right and safe, um, perfect, and yet always feeling somehow to to fall a little bit short. So I've outlined these patterns. I'm sure that you can have some recognition of them and how much affliction they cause. And they're story builders. They're narrative makers. We can create a sense of who we are out of these patterns. And my own, my own sense is that if we're not aware of these patterns, it's possible that we may actually be unconsciously cultivating and practicing them. And one of the early teachings that is so, I think, helpful in the Buddhist teaching is that and he says that what we frequently think about and dwell upon, to this does the mind incline. Do we notice that? If we frequently think about and dwell upon uh, ill will, we get better at it. And it, it becomes our default mode. You know, if we frequently inhabit the landscape of sensual craving, um, doesn't it indeed just become a habit and a pattern um, and increasing a sense of insufficiency inwardly? We should never underestimate the power of these patterns of forgetfulness that we call the hindrances or veiling patterns that really prevent us from seeing life as it is and responding appropriately. So much of what we deeply value is sacrificed in the face of the hindrances, compassion, mindfulness, equanimity, <coughs> joyfulness and responsiveness. A life of awareness tells us that we have choices. I think one of the greatest gifts of mindfulness is being able to choose where we place our attention and the quality of attention we bring. In this moment, you can choose 
to listen or you can choose to attend to the sensations in your hand. You have choices about where you place your attention and the quality of attention that we bring. We discover that we can choose to feed and attend to the seven limbs of heart that lead to liberation rather than feeding the patterns that lead to distress and confusion. I think this is really a, a moment-to-moment -moment inquiry that we bring to our thoughts, our moods, our speech, and our actions. In the Buddhist teaching, these, these five forgetfulness patterns are really the, the five visible faces of greed and hatred and confusion, which in themselves are said to be the three visible faces of ignorance, of not knowing the nature of life. Many of you will be familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the really pivotal teachings on the development of mindfulness. And in that discourse, and you look at the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, the one thing that's um, coherent between all the different translations of the Satipatthana Sutta in this fourth way of establishing mindfulness, there appears these two lists of the seven treasures, the seven limbs of awakening, sitting side by side with the list of the five hindrances. I don't think this is accidental because I think in placing these, these two, two realms of experience side by side, um, it illustrates in many ways the, the tension the tension of waking up, the challenge of waking up. We can see the relational nature of these two lists of the hindrances and the awakening factors. We see that when, when the hindrances are present, the craving, the aversion, the, the dissociation, the agitation and doubt, that the, these pull us in the direction of greater confusion, of repetition, of feeling lost, of feeling overwhelmed. And they sabotage our most wholesome intentions to be kind and generous and compassionate awake. They make us forgetful. And we see that the bojangas are actually pulling us in a different direction. They're pulling us in the direction of unbinding from confusion. They pull us in the direction of of deepening the wholesome intentions and our capacity to sustain those intentions of compassion and responsiveness and equanimity and engagement with life. They remind us experientially of what we most deeply value and they give confidence in our capacity to be awake. I think we should never underestimate the power of the bojangas when we commit ourselves to their cultivation. It's through their cultivation that the shape of our mind is transformed and that we live our capacity to be the creative, responsive, insightful human beings that we have the capacity to be. In cultivating the bojangas, we really do 
taste moments of freedom. We taste moments of wakefulness. We taste moments of liberation. And in many ways, when, when we are actually cultivating and practicing the Vojangas, we're actually practicing freedom. We're practicing liberation in the moment. So we see this tension of waking up, and it's easy for us to, to think of this as being a kind of negative tension, you know, where we, we blame ourselves for forgetfulness or we blame ourselves for, you know, losing the intentions that we cherish. But it's not a negative tension. This, this is a creative tension because it is in the classroom of that confusion and reactivity that we begin to cultivate these awakening factors. Patterns of confusion, patterns of reactivity, they can have quite a long history. Sometimes they're even generational and inherited. But just because these patterns of reactivity have a long history, it does not mean that they have an equally long future. And these patterns of reactivity, they really don't have an independent self-existence. For their survival and their continuation, they require being fed, being reinforced, being supported. So I think it's useful, I think, to, to look at what are, the, what are the factors that feed the difficult if they don't have an independence of existence? What is it that really feeds and nourishes and, and continues the patterns of reactivity and confusion that so often lead us to despair? The Buddha made uh, some comments about this. He says patterns of reactivity thrive in an absence of mindfulness. They thrive in the landscape of heedlessness. He says these patterns of reactivity thrive in the landscape where there's a forgetfulness of the universal laws of change, of conditionality, of, and in the landscape, in the forgetfulness of non-self said these patterns thrive and are sustained in a landscape where there's a, a lack of restraint. You know how easy it is for us to go through life in an endless pursuit of the pleasant sensation, giving authority to our prevailing mood and the reactions they give birth to, being a kind of beggar at the sense doors. Says these patterns thrive in the landscape of unwise attention through dwelling upon what doesn't serve us well. And these patterns thrive in a climate of doubt, doubt in ourselves and doubt in possibilities. So then the Buddha says, what is it that supports the treasures in our hearts that lead to awakening? What is it that really nourishes the bojangas, these qualities that 
are seeds of potentiality within each of us. So it's the first of these is mindfulness. Mindfulness supports us in being mindfulness is an embarkation point for being able to cultivate the skillful and wholesome. Learning to live in the light of our understanding of impermanence, insubstantiality, learning to live in the light of this, not just an intellectual knowing, but the felt sense of knowing, that insight into change, into insubstantiality, into conditionality, insight is not something we have, but it is something that we practice. So one, another of the landscapes that really supports the cultivation of these treasures is learning contentment, not a bovine contentment, you know, of munching our way through a field of grass, but a contentment at peace with what is, with the sense that we have everything we need in this moment for wakefulness. And we have everything we need in this moment for kindness and for compassion. Learning contentment and learning to, to use our sense doors in the service, not of greed or, or wanting, but learning to use our sense doors in the service of sensitivity, respect, and mindfulness of the kind of footprint that we're all leaving on the world with our every thought and our every word and act. So what really supports this cultivation of these treasures is developing skillful attention, not grasping at sensory impressions or our associations with them, attending to what we most deeply value. And the last of these landscapes that really supports this waking up process is really developing the trust and the confidence in our capacity to flourish and to awaken, to have trust and confidence in the path that we walk on. Now these seven treasures, these seven limbs of awakening are interwoven Yet as we become increasingly sensitive to the climate of our hearts and minds in any moments, there's a skillfulness in knowing when to highlight one of these seven limbs more than another. In times of agitation or restlessness, it would be unhelpful to focus on developing investigation as this is likely going to feed the agitation. It's the right time to cultivate calm, collectedness, equanimity. In times of dullness or numbness, it would not be helpful to be cultivating calm, samadhi or equanimity. It would be helpful to be cultivating investigation and joy. I think we can, we can think of these, these seven treasures, these seven limbs of awakening as being different instruments in an orchestra. Each has its own voice. And yet it is always the right moment to develop mindfulness because nothing, none of these other qualities 
are possible without that ground of sati. So, I'm going to after. So we're going for a while. I want to just take a pause moment to see if anyone has any questions or any reflections. And we're using the raised hand system. Hopefully, you you know where to find that. So, if anyone has any reflections or questions at this point, this would be really a welcome time to bring them forward. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.